listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Sponsored by Storm, the digital cinema production hub from The Foundry. Go to thefoundry.co.uk slash storm for details. And by the Australian Cinematographers Society. Visit cinematographer.org.au. Hi, and welcome to this week's Red Centre. I'm Mike Seymour, joined uh, with Jason Wingrove here in the Central Tech Compound. Central Tech Commentary Position. How are we? I'm very well. I'm very well. Look, and look, we had a great response to last week's uh, podcast. Yeah, that was fantastic. Very, very good. Now, a few of you said, oh, no, I don't think you're going to do another one before NAB. And you couldn't be more wrong. In fact, we're going to try and get in two Two more before NAB. Now, in the last one, we uh, said that coming up this week on the show, as in today, we would have uh, Stu Mashwitz. Stu is unable to make it for today, so we're bumping Stu back to next week, which is fine. Uh, So we'll delay that discussion about New Zealand and... um, and his experiences with the Epic, which is fine also because since we uh, spoke last, Jace, you've been shooting with the Epic, and I know a lot of people are really interested to get your take on that. So. Yeah, it was a really interesting thing, because I guess what I did was go out and do a bit more sepal. I know people probably... I need, I'm seriously stuck in a rut and need to start moving away from actually, people, people swimming in pools. Well, some people actually thought it was really good because it gave you, and, and we will discuss it this later in the show, yes. a, a particularly good perspective on doing the same type of shoot with multiple different cameras. Exactly. In fact, I went back to some of the location, one of the pools I've been to with some of the other tests I'd done. But uh, I think what was I was keen to do was to just literally put put lens in body, grab it, and just walk around and, and shoot it in the same kind of run-and-gun style that... Uh, uh, that I kind of used to doing with the 5D, I guess, and just see, and, would, and could I was, get away with it? Someone was kind enough to say it was some of the best epic footage thus published. Yeah. But uh, we'll discuss that later in the show. <laughs> uh, also coming up later in the show, we have an interview uh, to do with the Alexa. So it's not just going to be a red-centric show. Absolutely. Um, and, not at all. Uh, not at all. And uh, this is um, actually kind of a bit of a favourite of mine, uh, Jace, because I have to confess, as a kid... On, I think, a Sunday night, I used to sit around and watch Upstairs, Downstairs. Good period English drama. My mother, who, let's face it, has exactly the same haircut as the Queen, um, just thinks that this is the greatest show ever. And when I discovered that they'd remade Upstairs, Downstairs, and with some of the original cast... Red Centre or Upstairs, Downstairs? What? Sorry, are you talking about RC podcasts or are you talking about is the best show ever? Uh, no, I'm oh, sorry, my mother downstairs. thought oh, Upstairs sorry. Downstairs was the best show ever. Okay. She sorry. still thinks it's the best I'm show sorry. ever. Everything that modern society has done since then has been a downhill exercise, <laughs> culturally speaking. <laughs> anyway, my point is we've got Adam coming up later in the show. Adam's the DOP who shot that. He shot it on the Alexa. He's also shot some other really interesting stuff, including Outcast, which I think was shot on the D21. Mm-hmm. But what was interesting about that is it was shot with anamorphic lenses. So um, we're going to chat with uh, Adam later in the show. Yeah. Uh, and then a, a kind of little treat near the end, like a bit of an Easter egg for those of you that uh, hang around to the end of the show. Indeed. Um, so let's kick off, as we will, with the news, and then um, we'll come back and grill you further, Jason, about your opinion of this small, wee little camera that All you've right. been uh, shooting with. Oh, yeah. And now, the RC News. Okay, so first up in the news, um, there is a lot of stuff to do with the RED camera. We know there's lots of stuff being published. Um, 
about this, that, and the other thing in terms of deliveries and stuff. We're not going to get into that in a bit-by-bit basis because that's changing so quickly. Rapidly. Um, I think the, the, the big takeout in terms of red news, just in terms of that kind of stuff, which we will uh, just only touch on, is to say that there is definitely this stake in the ground, which is NAB. So those of you that aren't familiar, National Association of Broadcasters is the show where Red first launched. It's also the show that they announced they were going to do an epic, and it's also the show that they intend to announce something new at. But more importantly, it's sort of shaping up as this uh, sort of stake in the ground for um, epics being kind of released. Yeah. And obviously now, obviously, it's also a return to the show floor um, from being sort of on the outers, I guess, in, in uh, at the, the Tropicana last year, really having a bigger, bigger booth than two years ago and uh, with, you know, some secret sauce, I guess. We don't know what that is, but uh, it's definitely uh, going to be uh, beyond, epic and beyond, I guess. And those regular uh, listeners will know that we, in fact, were the only ones who were allowed to film uh, last year in the uh, what was sort of cell block that was the set um, for the epic. And, again, we'll be there uh, filming and doing stuff. And, Jason, we've got... Uh, sorry? Too right. I thought you said tomorrow. I said, Too right. Um, and we're going to be <laughs> doing this show, the RC, live in... Uh, live as in live to an audience recorded... Uh, from NAB on the Tuesday afternoon in the post pit. Do you want to just discuss that? Yeah, okay, so the post pit, obviously, that is at South Lower Hall. Uh, that is t- uh, Tuesday afternoon. I think it's about 12, 12 till 4.30 or 12.30 till 4.30, something like that. Uh, you've probably got a much more specifics on the rundown, but the idea what we want to do is obviously kick off with a bit of a live version of, of RC, uh, obviously, we get to the show on the weekend and also have Monday to walk around the show, see what the hot spots are, see what any new gear, and, and you know, chat to some of the manufacturers and people and sort of peek behind the curtains and see what's coming up. And obviously, for Tuesday, we'll give a bit of a roundup of what we think is cool. Through, not just uh, on that particular section, but obviously throughout the, that afternoon, we're also going to. Uh, as we sort of find new bits of kit, we're going to collar those responsible and drag them kicking and screaming up to the stage to show their wares, even if we can try and get stuff out from under little uh, glass uh, cabinets and you know, actually physically get our hands on, 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 on things that may not be quite ready for market. But uh, if it's interesting, we're going to get it up there on stage, including uh, human beings. So the post pit is happening, um, actually I think it's more like 2 o'clock, but on the afternoon of Tuesday. Now if you go down the South Hall at NAB, uh, you have to walk right to the end of the South Hall, uh, as in the bit most away from what you describe as the end where the strip, uh, you know, the end that's closest to the main uh, hotel section. Um, So you walk right down the end there. Now some buses will drop you at that end, um, so it's a little confusing, uh, but most of the buses that leave, leave from the other end. So it's the opposite end to the Renaissance Hotel. And down the end there, which is well away from uh, pretty much uh, the main big booths at the front of the hall, there's a booth that is called the Post Pit. Each day they give that booth to different organisations and they give it to us on Tuesday afternoon. Jim Mashowitz is going to be there. Uh, Tyler Ginter is going to be there. We've got some other guests stopping by from some other companies. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to have an Epic there uh, on a Steadicam and some other fun stuff going on we're going to have clips to show you a frank discussion and we're going to try and record that bundle that up as the show from vegas for the rc we'll have another show before then as i said with Stu, uh, talking about the new zealand experience the one that was going to go in this week uh, that'll be out next week uh so that's uh the i'm going to say the the 12th yeah, of 12th april tuesday yes yeah that's correct 
So that's going to be awesome. Uh, last year was a really great turnout. and uh, Yeah, it was huge. Yeah, it last was year. massive, particularly when Ted turned up with uh, Carl and Epic, which at that stage really wasn't, he hadn't done the huge world tour of Ted. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I'm sure hopefully we'll, we'll have something equally as interesting, um, particularly uh, maybe hopefully, who knows, we'll see, we'll see what Red's magic surprise is and if it's portable. <laughs> now we're going to come back and discuss more about uh, Red and Epic as we discuss Jason's experience firsthand with it. But let's uh, go to some other news with other camera manufacturers. And uh, Jace Sony. Mm, well, this is really interesting. In fact, um, a lot more interesting than I actually thought. I've just come straight from a briefing on, on the Sony uh, FS100, which is sort of, I guess, the baby F3, you could call it. Uh, and I was really quite impressed with, with what I saw. I didn't actually get to have a hands-on with the camera yet, but we definitely will do really shortly. Uh, but So some of these details are going to be a bit scattergun, but all of them are really, really interesting. Uh, first up is the thing is really quite small, obviously. It's only... Um, uh, it's uh, What have we got? It's 120, 120 by 100 by 193 uh, millimetres, so it's 5 by 4 by 7.5 or so inches. Uh, it weighs a kilo. It really is quite small and is really well built uh, from all reports. Uh, you know, 3 8 inch bolts and quarter inch bolts all over the thing. Uh, it's going to cost, uh, a, I'm talking Australian prices here at the moment, which is getting closer and closer to US by the day, uh, is around about six, a little bit under 6,000 uh, as a body only, and about a little bit over 6,000 for uh, with a lens, uh, so a kit with a lens. Um, now, the release has been pushed back a little bit due to obviously uh, events in Japan. It was going to be uh, going to be literally available for sale around May, and it now looking pushed back to July. Um, so, but it's really impressive. It's got obviously a lot like the F3. It's got assignable buttons all over it for a zebra peaking histogram, that kind of thing. Um, it has. Uh, it does not have SDI out, uh, but it, what interestingly, what it does have, Mike, is a, a new sort of protocol of HDMI, and I think it's probably you know a bit of a one-off. It's not like we've invented a new standard, but HDMI with time code. Uh, now, as far as I know, there's never been time code through HDMI. Right? No, well, that was a big thing, really. You, you wanted to have an HDMI output that would go to a monitor, but if you wanted to do time code and do stuff properly, you'd output HD SDI, and then mm. you'd have time code in normally 422, but there is a version of that that's 444. But uh, yeah, so yeah. so that's it. That's I gotta say, I, I applaud them doing that. I gotta say though, those connectors on HDMI oh, are I not tell professional. You, I'm connectors. glad you said that because literally my last shoot, uh, I did a little shoot. Uh, this week on Tuesday with um, on my 5D and I was a bit of a run and gun thing and I only had like a couple of people in my crew and I was literally, I didn't have like a camera system or someone to throw the camera at because it was literally, I kept bumping one of the five uh, HDMI cables that went from the cable, from the camera to my HDMI splitter and then my HDMI splitter to either the output to Video Village or through to my onboard monitor. One of those connectors somewhere in there was just fritzing out enough. And of course, HDMI being this incredibly, it's not sort of like on or off thing. Every time it break and make a connection, it has to go, oh, hi, I'm HDMI. How are you? Good. What, pro- what version of the protocol are you? I'm 1.3. Oh, I'm 1.4. Okay, let's talk. And then it takes about 50 million seconds <laughs> for the image to come back again. Oh, and then, great. Okay, great. I'm ready to shoot. And then I tense up and then I move it, it again. And then it all blanks out again. And I just couldn't work out what the f- was going on with these cables. Um, so, yeah, HDMI, 
Anyway, anyway. Not a professional connector. Not a professional connector. But, you know, hey, look, this is, you know, this is not an F3. It has no SDI, it has no Genlock, has no 3D linking, which we've seen, which we will hopefully soon see implemented with something like the F3. Um, uh, but as it says, it has this HDMI with timecode. Now, the HDMI, obviously, the camera itself is um, 420 8 bit. Uh, but through HDMI, you get 422, uh, which is interesting. And we believe that's going to be, although you, as so I'm just yet gonna, to I'm just have gonna a camera. slow you down there for a second because I think that's okay. a really huge point, and Please I don't do. want to get past it. So, what we're talking think, about. Yes, we talked about it. You think that's obviously a much bigger. Well, I think it's a big point, news though. because I think the trouble with these cameras, well, let's take the 5D and the 7D, for example. A lot of people said we would love it if this camera had uh, 1920 by 1080 on the 5D as an output. Then we could record it to one of these. I think there are now four different types of like uh, solid state um, little recorders that can mm. record high quality uh, imagery, and that don't cost three times the price of the don't camera. Cost three times. No, we're talking about something that might cost as little as a thousand bucks. It's going to mm. be able to record that. Now, if you have an output that is only uh, four to zero, or worse, if you have an output that's uh, got menus all over it, or lines, or um, crop marks, or something, it's not not really much use. But full ninety twenty by ten eighty at four two two now. I know it's only 8-bit, but I've got to tell you, for years I was doing commercials 8-bit on DigiBetaCam, and, uh, you know, we never went, oh, my God, this is appalling, we can't create it. We were like, yeah, you know. Yeah. Because they're, they're, you, you gain back a lot, and it's only 8-bit, but you gain back a lot by not having it compressed. Now, with the test that you did with the F3, if you remember, we, did it, we, did, we didn't obviously have the full 444 output on that camera yet, but we had 422 ability mm-hmm. through SDI, and we recorded some tests on green screen, Yep. 420 to yep. the S by S card and then, you know, through to uh, on, on, you know, on an outboard recorder. And that extra bit of colour information was incredibly important for green screen, obviously, was what we tested. Well, the main thing is that what you what do you have in a compression algorithm normally is uh, the problem of ringing around large changes where there's uh, compression from low to high. So you've got high frequency in here, you've got low uh, frequency in a green screen. And so it's going to basically try and suppress the green screen to eke out as much compression as possible and flatten that. We don't care about that in the in the broad sense, but when it comes to the edge where it touches the hair, you're sort of imagining the transition between light yellow hair and and green. That's one kind of transition. But if you think about it from another point of view, overlay that with a mental image of a compression map, you've got really high compression hitting low compression. And as it moves between the two, you kind of get this blockiness. It doesn't sort of hit it to the naked eye, but that's exactly what you don't want on green screen. Um, an equivalent thing in the telecine days is if you asked, uh, or you had a colorist that didn't know what they were doing, they would use secondaries to make the green screen look really great. And so you'd sit there and go, oh, that's a bloody great green screen, isn't it? Yeah. And all they'd have done is effectively keyed the green screen and then pumped in new green to it, which meant you had a key of a key and you had the same problem. Mm. So so it's, it's edge integrity at a transitional change that we're getting back by doing this thing. Now... Yes, it's only 8-bit, uh, which is, you know, not ideal, but I've got to tell you, as I say, like, DigiBeta, for years, digital broadcast quality yeah. was traditionally, Telsini goes out 8-bit uh, to a DigiBeta, and uh, you consider that uncompressed. It wasn't, but it was 2-to-1. Yeah, but you it's scary it when you go back to some of those old tapes, and you go, wow, this was the but king. that would have been, uh, seven, uh, that would have been you know, 576 by... Um, at, at sort of yeah. color into your color into this zero. is nineteen twenty by ten eighty. So mm. I've got to say, I'm, I'm I'm pretty impressed. Now I'm not familiar with the ABC HD uh, compression, which this obviously uses. Uh, I think from memory. Uh, really? It's, no. Yeah. Uh? No. 
28 megabits a second. Now, this is not the usual bit rate. Apparently, that, that bit rate is a slightly outside or above the AVC, H, uh, AVC HD codec uh, standard. So, and that's actually slightly higher bit rate than the um, AF100 or AF100 yep. too. So, look, as we had with, with the F3, we sort of, you know, people scoffed at, you know, 35 megabits a second. And you and I both looked at some, what that camera was capable of, really quite impressed with, with what it could do with that data. So I'm not going to even look at data rates and all that sort of stuff. We're going to let's see what the camera does. Well, first I, think, of all. I think we should flag that it's definitely an area that you'd want to check because it potentially has problems. Yes, it's not a, a full-on robust professional, you yeah. know, super, super, you know... But you'd get that codec. back if you, if you did something with the, uh, the 422. Yeah, okay. So, again, on the visual side, we'll leave that a little bit, you know, to one side because, again, the proof's going to be in the pudding. Um, it's got the same flip-out LCD as the F3 does, but that is also actually on the top of the camera rather than on the side, and it is also your EVF. So you can add on like a click-on, kind of like a, a loop to that, and that becomes your electronic viewfinder. So unlike something like the uh, F3, which has, and I guess the AF100, which has a viewfinder and an LCD, but, yeah. I know when Tom and I were shooting some of the, the tests yeah. with F3, it was really nice. I could, you know, we could sort of share. So you don't quite have that sort of you know that issue there um and the evf itself is slightly lesser resolution than say uh, uh the f3 because obviously you, it's not an evf it's an lcd with a loop on the top of it but did it be covered the lens mounts did you miss that uh that? yeah no I will, okay yep obviously yes that? let's jump back to the beginning it is a super 35 sensor it uses exactly the same sensor as the sony f3 um, and we like that. Yeah, absolutely. It has the as its base. It has the um, uh, NEX mount, I guess, or the N mount, which is uh, Sony proprietary mount. Uh, it also, I think, will come or there will be available an uh, NEX mount to uh, Alpha mount, which is Sony's DSLR big stills mount as well. And obviously, all that mount adapter is smart mounts. Uh, so um, the lens uh, that comes in the kit is a um, uh, let me remember what it is. It's a like uh, eighteen to two hundred mil yeah. f three five to six three. So it's a sliding um, um, aperture base aperture lens. It has optical stabilization inside the lens, and uh, it I guess mated to the camera, it has autofocus and auto aperture. The zoom is manual, of course, but and obviously all with all of that, it's kind of the uh, the protocol and the way the comp- the camera talks to the lens is you know it, there's smoothing in the way things move. You don't, you don't the focus isn't just going to jump around like you know like a stills camera. So that's all really good. Obviously, there are a ton of other mounts for the main thing. The interesting thing is there's a ton of other mounts for this camera. I personally have sitting on my desk. I think I've got a Canon and a PL mount adapter for these mount, for, mount for adapters. the adapters for the NX uh, right, so you got NEX two adapters dumb adapters dumb adapters okay. very dumb and probably very dumb of me to buy them off eBay for about 100 bucks each uh, but we'll, well see we'll see make sure as long as a you know PL lens doesn't fall out of it as we bolt it on <laughs> <laughs> can I borrow a lens Mike 
Um, but, but Sony kind of expects you to do that. Absolutely, right? they. You know, I've seen promotional material from there, and you know, they. It's definitely it's part of this whole open thing. They're you know very keen on promoting the fact that there is a ton of mounts, be it Leica, Mamiya, you name it. If you've got a lens, there is an amount adapter, either uh, you know, you know, from completely reputable designers or or you know, mildly iffy third parties. There's yeah, you can get a you can. Get, there's not probably not a lens format you can't get on this. So it's actually quite an interesting little little lens mount. Um, uh, okay, well, let me go keep going through some of this stuff quickly. It records the memory stick or the SD card. Obviously, going to SD card or memory stick, it has four two zero and it is eight bit. Um, what's interesting and what slightly makes it actually takes it a bit above the F three is it'll do. Uh, 60 frames or 50 frames, depending on whether you get the PAL or the U- or the mm-hmm. uh, NTSC version of the camera, it does it at 1080p. The F3 drops you down to 720p. As soon as you get above, say, about 30 frames a second, it pops you down to 720p for the overcrank or undercrank mode, uh, for the overcrank mode. Um, the This will actually keep going all the way, doing 1080p all the way, all the way up to um, 50 or 60 as a top. Um, obviously... As with the uh, F3 and the like, there's no line skipping, no aliasing, or very much reduced aliasing. So again, and also um, rolling shutter is pretty much should be on par with F3 or same. Uh, ISO, we're yet to do. I think it'll be part of our tests once we sort of work out. I'm presuming it's probably going to be on par again, part on par with F3, which is around 800, maybe slightly less than the posted 800. You know, not not far off it. Uh, so we'll again we'll test that when we actually physically get a camera. Well, that's another interesting thing I think with the design of it is there's something called the FMU128, which is a flash recording unit, uh, which uh, solid state obviously and lets you have 10 hour recording time. But isn't this sort of annoying thing that you bolt on the back on, on you know on a monitor mount with extra cables and other batteries to charge? This actually docks into the body in the space in the body. There's no cables. It powers from the body and it's actually only about 850 bucks. So, and then you just undock it. Uh, you can plug the whole camera into USB to get your data off, or you can undock this uh, flash unit and then plug that into USB. So, uh, really quite an interesting camera, and they've really thought this out. Very, I'm really quite impressed and quite way to get my hands on it. Obviously, again, there is concessions towards, say, F3 or, or above. Obviously, this is not, you know, this is not a scarlet killer, really. Um, this is not, you know, this is not designed to, in any way to approach the F3, I guess. It's, you know, it's, it's a camera on its own, really. I'm really quite surprised for the money. What it is, I think, is certainly the Panasonic AF100 killer. That, that's no doubt. Obviously, it's Super 35, not Micro Four Thirds. And, and I mean, uh, Sony must have in their targets that camera company rather than the other camera company. Who hasn't done anything, which Canon. No, no, no. We, <laughs> exactly. I'm saying that they're, they've got to be oh, no, Panasonic, yes. right? Because yes. that's the camera company that is most in it and Canon yeah. isn't, Yeah. you know, like the one that they're kind of targeting. Yeah. Um, this I, feels like it's, you know got no nod to an SLR. I think, you know, whereas, like, I suppose something like the F3 is maybe designed more to be, you know, maybe second unit or be rig cam, whatever, for if you've got, you know, um, if you're shooting with um, F23s or F35s and, you know, and this is, I think this is more the DSLR killer. This is, design, this is you know... You think this, it is? This is more the grown-up... Well, okay, also, it's also got, sorry, it's got obviously manual audio controls on top of it, two nice knobs that you can do. You've got headphones XLR out. XLR input? Two XLR inputs. So, and, but and mic thing, on the top. But you said five, six grand, right? Yep. Six, six grand. So yep. I'm offering you 5D 
for well, less than that. Yeah. You know, you really think it's going to be competing with this? Well, the only it's going to be the sensor size. It's that that look, that larger full frame sensor versus Super Thirty Five is well, the one thing. Change. But this is hmm? I mean, it's oh, the m- money difference, sure. But you know, I don't know. I'm. I just didn't. For me, okay. Well, no, no. Yeah, but think about the production hassles. You know, on set, you don't. This is you get if you're going to have. It just didn't seem like this was aimed at the SLR type filmmaker. This mm. was aimed at the. Well, it's also around reality TV, yeah. I guess. EPK, exactly. You know, press interview. You know, interview exactly. Which I guess was probably the lower end of the F 3s use, I suppose. Because I don't think you really want to send out a doesn't matter current what. affairs crew with a SLR. No. Well, apart from anything else, this the ten minute record time kills you. This would be you know, great for those guys as yeah. well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and there's a lot of cameras. In it that doesn't matter side. what you think this camera is going to be used for. That the F3, whatever AF100, all of these cameras are going to be pulled higher or dragged lower than what they, you know, their uses. Everyone's, you know, again, we kept saying life's going to find a way. Everyone's going to find a use beyond what Sony or whoever think is positioned. You know, F3 is going to get dragged into higher end usage and lower, and this is going to get, you know, people are going to drag this around the world on corporate jobs as well, I'm sure. Well, so interesting. Anyway, we'd love to get our hands on it. I'm quite impressed. Can you tell? Yeah. So <laughs> I have not. This is not a paid Sony announcement. <laughs> no, that's right. However, my bank account details Sony are... <laughs> Sony fanboy. <coughs> um, anyway... Hey, um, something else I wanted to touch on. You just touched on it in that um, product uh, preview. <laughs> Sorry, I thought you were going to say product placement. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Um, we are obviously dead um, respectful and sorry for what's happened to Japan with both the tsunami, uh, the earthquake course, and the nuclear yep. um, incident. But I just want to, without any way detracting from that by being coarse and discussing commercial aspects, I mean, we've, the, our hearts go out to those people, in Japan, and, and a lot of people that we know from our various companies um, in Japan, including my own family. I have mm. family in Japan. But if I could just switch gear and just discuss it purely from a crappy financial corporate point of view, um, we're starting to see the impact of that in, in the camera market. Now, one of the ones I hadn't expected to see, we got tip off of this about, about a week ago. I couldn't get a, any kind of um, uh, accurate, I don't know, how can I put this, validation of it. But one of the ones was SR tapes. Now, really? since that first tip-off they got, which is basically to say that the SR tape production image shut down, I've had other confirmed reports from people, especially in America, saying that SR tapes have just started disappearing across the USA. Now, some people have accused uh, some dealers of actually hoarding them because uh, there's such a rarity of them. And once uh, it sort of dries up a bit, the price will obviously go through the roof for SR tapes because people just need SR tapes. Um, which is pretty nasty that someone would actually try to exploit that. But, yeah. but whether or not that is true, definitely there is already uh, a lot of difficulty if you try going to dealers in getting SR tapes. And that's just mm-hmm. one of many we've heard of delays for RED. Canon has today announced that they're delaying uh, indefinitely the release of at least three lenses uh, because of the... Um, these are stills lenses mm. uh, because of the problems in supply. And, of course, yep. it's a complicated international market, isn't it, where one component uh, may be a chip, for example. Everyone's got something coming from, from that region. Yeah, you might have something that's ostensibly designed in California, mm. built in China, but will contain components that are unable to come out of Japan. Yeah, and not only is that direct supply problem because, say, there's actual physical damage to an infrastructure such as a factory, but the rolling power cuts and the need to conserve. And let's face it, what is no doubt 
more vital things than brand new Canon lenses. It's yeah. just causing industry to funnel its uh, energy uh, available uh, things into yeah, other It's not really places. getting any better. No, and I actually think it's going to get a bunch worse. I think it's going to get a bunch worse. And I, I think we're going to see it next, actually, in the car industry. I think you'll start seeing a well, real the, slowdown with Nothing will be exported because everything is going to be stopped at the border because it'll be hot. So, oh, you think that'll also be... Well, I, I know that the yep. US has stopped well, food. Um, issues, yeah, but a lot of food. There's issues with drinking water now in Tokyo and anyway. So, so it's... So I said that not that it's uh, take anything away from the much more important issue of the Absolutely. humanitarian aspects, yep. but it is going to affect a bunch of stuff. And I think at NAB we'll actually see um, some real delays uh, popping up as as the sort of consequences start to become uh, more evident as yep. to that supply chain. Now back to the product thing. If if Canon would like to put out a camera just as interesting as this, I'll spend half an hour talking about that as well. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> I talk about stuff that's interesting. And if anybody actually wants to make something that's interesting, I'll, I'll, and if they actually bother to want to pick up the phone or put their hand to the keyboard and tell us about it, we'll talk about it. Actually, actually I should just point out that Canon Australia is actually very good at communicating Sorry. with me. Absolutely. Not you. <laughs> no. Me, they're really good. I'm not no. really talking but, about them at this point, but maybe, okay. maybe somebody no, else. you're talking about somebody okay. else. Yeah. Um, okay. okay. Anyway. So. Off the soapbox. So I think that's, that's about it for uh, news. Mm, I think so. Uh, actually, a couple of little things. Uh, just a quick thing. Re, um, Teradek, we've mentioned them a while back uh, when they first launched the Cube, which is, you know, obviously obviously awesome. Uh, but uh, a couple of other things. One of the main things why I sort of latched onto it and what we've been desperately loving to get is, you know, having a iPad in our hand with, you know, with video split on it. And also... Um, the uh, I guess getting the latency down there has been not an issue but you know the, we've always been faced with the fact that there's going to be you know a fair few oh, second yeah. latency actually, with, uh, with any any video over IP it was originally slated as it's never actually I've never really seen it but it was originally slated to be about 10 seconds it's uh, ghastly it, it, it has been uh, and, and and the other thing was obviously the setup of, of anything any sort of uh, video over IP device is quite uh, a little bit fiddly I guess just like kind of like logging in to uh, like a router, essentially, like admining in. Um, so uh, Teradek have actually nailed a couple of those things firmly in the, in, uh, in the head. Um, they've uh, launched, and there's also another issue as well, which I'll talk about with re-Epic. Uh, they've launched a really cool, rather than actually going normally through some kind of admin kind of console thing to play, to uh, administer the, the Teradek Cube thing, you've got, uh, you can now, they have a, like a, essentially a Mac app, which you can just launch la- oh, really? and download. Uh, it is called, uh, it's called Terra Central, and you can download that for free from the Teradek website and essentially just launch that and completely manage the, the thing without even having to sort of essentially you know, log in through a sort of kind of console thing. Um, and the latency now to iPad is down to two, 250 milliseconds, like a quarter of a second. So, you know, really quite, quite um, uh, well, essentially that is... Uh, a quarter know, of a second is fine because frames. a quarter of a second is pan left, stop, yeah. and that's where I want the shot to be. Rather than pan left, stop, stop, hello... 
Someone, Earth someone tap him, tap him and tell him to stop. No, I stopped ages yeah. ago. So, okay. yeah. Um, yeah, and really, it starts to get would start to get really annoying if you're hearing the audio across the set and you're sort of queuing or whatever. Anything, you know, you, you get the idea. Well, so anyway, basically, they've they've nutted that, they've killed killed that issue, which is terrific. And obviously, there's a lot more to come from these guys. They're sort of kicking ass. Uh, and what the great thing they're doing is doing a lot of really good demo videos on their website. I don't. I really respond badly to written, you know, pages of written menus. If someone just says, "Look here," so you click on here. Don't worry about all those settings. You click here, drag that, boom, you're up. That's I, I love that kind of stuff. More of it, please. Uh, and the other thing, which is when the another thing which kind of counteracts if there is any disappointment with Epic. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. At, at the moment, if there is a disappointment with Epic at the moment, is the fact that just the bare body alone, obviously it'll be solved later with modules. The bare body alone does not have a DC out uh, connector. You can't get any power out of the body uh, to power, okay. say, something like uh, the Cube, right? So um, uh, the Teradek guys have got a, like a ton of battery plates for any kind, like Nikon, Canon, the LPE6 Canon batteries, which you just stick on the top. And then you can that has a limo connector on the end, just immediately just power. I think one LP six battery, one Canon five D battery will power the cube for longer than it'll usually power my camera for. Okay, so just just to walk, just in case somebody's slightly playing catch up here. So I put the cube on top of, say, my Epic. Could yep. be any other camera. Yep. I can't now pull power from that camera because in this particular instance with the Epic, there isn't a plug to do yep, it. Exactly. So Normally it comes to, with a four. And there's no place to fissure. put AA batteries in the. Quite solid, quite compact little cube. Yeah. They wisely went with like small four pin Limo connectors, which are, you know, usually industry standard. There'll be a cable right. to go to an Alexa or a cable to go to a Red uh, so, or to, you know, DTAP. So now what I can effectively do is gaffer, I guess, Velcro, Velcro their yeah. module, yeah. which is basically not much bigger than a battery, yeah. on top of that. And now it has. Whatever battery power type for I want for three or four hours. Power. Okay, yeah, great. Exactly. So, I, I, no matter what model of the, well, actually, no, what, what sort of power preference I have, I could use the same cube, and then in yeah, bit uh, Panasonic. If you've got a Panasonic battery or whatever, there's a ton. I'll put links into the website, okay. uh, onto the show notes. But anyway, I just, I'm just. This is a tiny little battery plate, but I was so when we had the Epic arrive, and I thought, oh, terrific, great, grab the cube, go and put. It. Oh, I can't power the thing and the last thing you want to do is have another battery another sort of you know another another sort of cable going to something something else if you can just sort of put it right on the top and you know the whole idea with the epic is it's small and light and easy and you can pick it up and wander around if you can be wireless and sort of almost self-powering itself freaking genius anyway um so we're gonna actually hope to have a bit more on the cube at uh, nab so yes we hope now. to yeah have the whole thing demoed at post pit which would be great because i'll think going back to those demo videos you can read about it, you can see it until you really see that how nice that is just in the hand and working then you sort of realize how cool it is to have your you know have a split on an ipad and, and by the way, we are currently in the process of making lots of free giveaways for people that are listeners to this show that turn up to the post pit on... I've been told by my producer who, who abseiled into the room um, that, in fact, I'm an idiot, and it starts at 1.30 on Tuesday, and the booth number is SL12705. Right. And, and there's a large note saying, please don't ignore my notes in future. So 30 on the 12th. Up the end of the South Hall, SL12705. And if you mention this gaff by me, I will give you a T-shirt. Um, so, uh, Jace, any other gear? Or can we get into a dis- frank discussion about your... Frank discussion. 
<laughs> bring so in Frank. Fr- yeah, bring in Frank. Okay, so okay, so let, let you guys some background. I grabbed the um, the epic in LA. I came back here. We did this great shoot. Jace uh, directed some stuff. One of which went up on FX Guide as the impossible shot. Um, we're going to discuss that in a second. And then I park it off with Stu to New Zealand uh, with John Montgomery and we just basically had a crew over there and we shot and did tons of great stuff all of which time Mon- uh, sorry all of which time Wingrove was sitting here going you utter utter bastards uh, <laughs> and so I said as soon as we got back I said Jace well can I just go back a bit to the shoot when we were doing with, with Ted and with yeah. the pinball machine and all the sort of test initial test shakedown tests you did here uh, I didn't really get much of a hands on there either because oh, but I was I was enjoying watching everybody else shoot with it but it was sort of bittersweet to just kind of go can I just have a hold of it yeah okay so there's anyway. quite a lot of people we had a very well organized shoot but that being said there was a, obviously a preference to people that um, you know yeah Rob Morton for example great guy stereographer uh, he was there obviously a good chance for him to hold it but he wasn't going to be on other shoots so right. we I was similarly not allowed to touch it. That's true, and then because, it's your camera. Uh, it's my camera, but, or our camera. Our, but our, your camera. The point is, I uh, got back, I said to Jace, hey, go shoot something, and uh, anything you want. And so, of course, you jumped at that yeah. and decided you'd yeah. take it. Now, I think what's good about this is that you have actually shot uh, similar material with similar cameras, mm. different light, different days, of course, but, you know, you get a feel for it. So, yeah. so bottom line, from that first day with the car mount stuff... Um, and then the subsequent just shooting, and I should point out that was the only, the only shoot you've been out on the harbour shooting with it and other stuff. What mm. do you, what do you you know? What's your take on it? Oh God, get me one. Uh, I think it's just I you know I'm really hard to sort of talk about it without sounding like a, you know full slipping into hyperbole and you know sounding like a freaking red scent like a a red um, Found what? red user post. Uh, okay, well let's I let's start with did did you think. That the image quality, because these are the sorts of things that really, um, yeah, this I'll be is more specific. The main, I'll interview issue. the, the actual you. image quality that you were seeing on your material. Yeah, that was with a variety of lenses, some of which were converted stills lenses. Yep, yeah, uh, it's was yeah, absolutely. Well, just I'll step back. What we had was a forty, sixty-five, and one eighty uh, Master Prime, and the and I had um, ten mil Master Prime, which was. Awesome, but huge, and a cool eight mil, a modified stills lens, and eight mil Nikkor with a PL mount on it, which was fisheye, which was nuts. But you know, when you cut it in with a few other bunch of shots, it's really quite interesting. I mean, the first thing, obviously, is just like the resolution. You know, I mean, I'm so used to seeing my stuff at you know at 1080, whereby 1080 is the originated res mm-hmm. right and it's you know you add the sort of mtfs and add all the sort of you know issues to get to 19 20 10 80 regardless of whatever it be at 5d or f3 or whatever um you know it looks nice and it's sharp and it's crisp but there's something about because i only literally essentially mainly poured over 19 20 10 80 footage converted Right to um, okay. To, so to let's give people the workflow. So we shot, and then I I came back with the magazines, the SSDs, and we shot four magazines. I'm going to say, and uh, anyway, we shot for what? hours on that yeah. shoot, and then we came back, and I converted that initially to uh, yeah, pretty well. I, I should also say we deliberately shot with Jason, not using HDRX. What we were trying to shoot was. Uh, the higher frame rates, so yeah, 96, exactly. 120, 
Because I think 120 was reasonably that's reasonably new, isn't it? I think. Well, it's it's the one that's less discussed because it's the uh, the the thinner or the less uh, footage. Oh God, I'm tongue tied. <laughs> it's the wider shot, not the uh, you know because of the options of 5K at full frame. Yes. Two, three, four. Yeah, that's right. Yep. So I had to go to two four one uh, uh, at this point to to shoot one hundred and twenty frames, and had to be you have to be non uh, non HDRX at this stage to go to one hundred and twenty frames. So if you're shooting full height, the the five D FF as it's called full frame, I guess, which is essentially sixteen nine. Yeah, then you'd be basically uh, only able to go up to ninety six in this current build, and uh, then you would halve that if you went to HDRX. Similarly, if you go up to one hundred and twenty frames in the you know more kind of uh, filmic uh, widescreen mode, then you're going to be able to only go to half that, which would be 60 frames. And we, we really wanted to be shooting, or you really wanted to be oh, shooting slow-mo. Because I wanted to uh, go where I hadn't been before yeah. with, with a sequel. I've done 60 frames and 30 frames and just 24. I've done a ton of that sort of stuff. I thought, ooh, give me the slow-mo and just see you know, what's, you know, what, what's, what difference it's going to make creatively to the project. Well, I, I think a huge difference is how quick it is to just punch up those high numbers because I went back and used my my number 22 Red 1 uh, year, two days ago and I ended up posting on Red User that I hated it. <laughs> I really hated it. It was just, it was actually shocking how much I hated it. I mean, I was trying to load the goddamn disk drive in the in the thing that holds the disk drive at the back of the red one that's blocking the menus and trying to get the pl- I'm like this is ridiculous this is taking me minutes and I was like I used to just shoving the SSD and I was like for the love of god this is like going back in I felt like I was I was putting leg braces on I was like Forrest Gump trying to put the leg braces on and run I was like get this crap all these gizmos off here and shoot Forrest give me shoot. a small camera so that was so changing it was really easy whereas not only was it easy, but we didn't have to do what we did in the red one, which is jump down from 3K to 2K. So if you decided to change the frame rate, your field of view didn't change, which I think was nice. That is the huge thing. No crop uh, going to 120 without having to bump into, well, essentially it's almost, uh, yeah, you'd have to go to 2K, I think, on a red one. Um, uh, so, yeah, I guess having now seen stuff that was originated at 5K and then brought down to 92, it was inherently much more, much, obviously at the same resolution as all the other 1920 stuff I've seen, but just there is such a, there is an inherent tack sharpness in there, which uh, is not pixel peeping. That's really, it kind of helps make, the soft stuff look all the more softer, you know what I mean? The sharper the sharp bits are, the more gorgeous the out-of-focus stuff becomes, I think. So there is definitely a gain from originating at a higher res and then downsampling to uh, to 1920 versus originating there, which sometimes can be maybe almost arguably not entirely look like 1920 so that was probably the first thing just the incredible sharpness the other thing which I think I guess is not necessarily a function of the epic but is a function of the frame rate that there's this and you and I sort of talked about it there's this sort of bridge you cross when you go past what we're normally used to seeing 60, 75 that kind of stuff where the average sort of you know film camera or, or, or slow-mo mode of a, of a digital camera can achieve. When you get up to that end, you really are starting to get into, I guess, what I started to call the phantom zone, where you're right on the bottom end of, you know, 
the, a lot of the phantom footage we start to use, it really does start to get into that area of analysing of analysed motion and the beauty of slow motion, which you get to some degree at 1696, but there is definitely, you'd agree, Mike, a difference between that and 120. That's like a real psychological and emotional step. I'd not only agree, I'd, I'd actually go further and say that as much as this sounds like, oh my God, you you are a completely the child that's complaining because you only got one pony. Um, when you're doing pouring shots, we did some pouring shots during the week at 120 frames. 120 wasn't enough. Mm. If I was doing a cereal commercial, mm. like a breakfast cereal, and I wanted the milk kind of hitting the flakes and just gorgeousness, I'd actually want to go probably 200. Mm. Um, now, I, I know that you could argue that anything about 120 is really specialised. I just think that there is a couple of key points. I think the first key point actually normally for me, if you're shooting 24 frames a second, is a, a 30 number where there's a point where you could like film a, a child and it looks almost normal, but actually just taking the edge off it, that was, that's a significant number. Mm. So that 24 to 30 is the first point. I think another one kicks in at about 60 for certain actions. Yep. Um, and then you're right, at 90 there's probably another kick, but at 120 there's almost anything that somebody does normal speed starts to look gorgeous. It starts to become fascinating. Yeah, we had this model actually. just putting a jacket on, flicking your hair, and it was like pretty cool. But it's not so impossibly slow like Phantom, whereby is actually something where's the thing in the frame is moving? Something's throwing me out. Something's moving. Oh, it's a little drop of rain in the foreground, you know, but yeah. everybody else is almost like you could make and manipulate a still frame and get this same shot. I think at 200 also, you get some really nice stuff with um, chopper blades kind of like slowing right down and and things like water and snow falling, but mm. I don't need to go to a thousand. Yeah, um, look, I don't want to do everything at 120 frames either. I don't want I don't want you know 120 frames to be the idea, and I don't want 120 frames to suddenly, as soon as everyone gets an epic, to all of a sudden, all we start to see is 2.4 to 1. 120 frames a second HGRX footage. It's the fact that it's there. I didn't use HGRX. I only used one part of its possibilities. But the fact that I'm holding in my hand something the size of a 5D pretty much, a little bit heavier, of course, but something about the size of a 5D that I can do 5, 5K, 120 frames, da-da-da, HGRX, whatever, uh, add any of those bits at one time. And I mean, the two things that I have found I didn't expect is how much I hate my Red 1, and secondly, <laughs> how little I pick up my 5D when it's sitting right beside me. Like, I'm honestly, on, I was on a, a boat, we were shooting on the harbour, and I had a 5D there, and I took... Yep. I mean, I literally, if you were to do a graph of my photography... I, normally on set, I take lots of photos because I actually, you know, don't I can't think I can really lift a frame from the video. I mean, I probably can, but like even today, I was, uh, and we'll talk about this later in the show. I did this interview with Rob Legato. Every interview, we press the button on the stills camera on the 5D to get a still shot of the person we're interviewing, so that we have that to use for publicity, and we don't have to lift a frame from the video. Mm. And now, I just you, my graph of usage would just plummet. Enter Epic, Mike stops picking up 5D that's sitting right beside it because he just knows that in most shots I can lift a hero frame. Cause, which you were doing. And I think, is, the, is there a button in Red Cine X? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's yeah. a button that says, there's two buttons. There's one at the bottom that just is a little picture of a camera that says R3D. That you do a single snapshot of a single R3D. Yep. Uh, it doesn't quite work in with HDRX, but anyway. And then the other button However, is, yeah. is export a TIFF, which is like uh, 84 meg. Uh, this, uh, they are now stunningly beautiful big frames considering, well, I guess they're about, as we say, we talked about it being roughly the rough, similar, similar res to DSLR or so, but they are per- exactly, you and would not. Bit. And it was only when I saw those 
uh, screenshots or those those yeah. those frame clips that I realized your comment of last episode that said I don't need my phone anymore, and I, then I got that, and I then yep, you're, you're right. This is this is you know because the one thing is slightly lighter than the other. Again, there's a little yeah, bit of a heaviness even, difference. Even but, though yeah. that the thing is, and I, I, this is another really important point. Like when we're on a shoot. I've often taken lots of photos, I mean, tons, and I've even, you know, been really proud of this fact. But the trouble is, you're never theoretically going to have a better lighting setup than the one where the hero camera is. Mm. So what it, it, a phantom, right? It's a genesis, I don't give it a toss. Whatever that is, we're probably lighting to that camera. And quite often, kicks, highlights, shadows, you know, just move a couple of degrees off that point and you haven't got as good a shot. And so the best thing you can do is always put your photo on top of the Genesis and take a, a click shot, and everyone goes, "Wow, aren't you a great photographer!" But, but so now I was like, "Well, yeah, I don't need to do that." Now that's not true for everything because obviously, yeah, cool. if we were shooting um, just normal twenty-four frames a second, that would be one forty-eight. That'd be a bit more motion blur than I'd like, um, you know. Mm. But honestly, when you're shooting at at one hundred and twenty frames a second, you've got one two hundred and fortieth of a second shutter. Yeah. Well. 1250 shutter is fine on my 5D. I find that to be a really good speed for photographing things and having them crisp. But every one of those frames is at a fifth. No, can't every one of those frames can't be at a fiftieth of a second. You dope. What? No, yeah, it's 120 frames a second. Yeah, yeah no, no, of course. It's I'm 180 thinking, degrees. Yeah, so you get yeah, one course, effectively sorry. 250th. Yep. But if you picked up an SLR yeah. and said, I'm going to photograph my kid playing cricket or playing football, you could reasonably action shot, set the you know, be yeah. on, a, on manual, you set uh, aperture to whatever you want, and you'd set it about at 250th, so you'd get the action shot of the ball in the air, and it would be hmm. crisp. And so, and I also found that, uh, I mean, we did have a very, we had a very, we had a very, no, we didn't have a very ND, we had a couple of filters and stuff, but I wasn't, mostly wasn't the using them. I was actually kind of doing the classic old sort of 5D thing of sort of keeping myself set at, you know, 180 degree rule, kind of, but then sort of as, you know, starting off in high ISO and as the sun came up, just kind of wiping the ISO down, just sort of slowly reducing it down. And then when it got to the limit, then I started to wind up the shutter. And start. I think, and it didn't really matter because we were shooting. I was shooting water and motion at high speed, so I was actually starting to shoot some stuff at, I think, about a forty-five degree shutter. But and it was, okay, but this is the other huge point. I reckon. Don't you just feel that when you're shooting with the Epic, it doesn't. It it as a camera does not call out for rods and matte boxes. That's right. You, you just don't feel like, I want to clutter this camera. I, I wouldn't mind one, maybe in. one little rod at the top. I mean, if you're going to put a follow focus on there, it'd be lovely to find some simple way of doing it yeah. without we're really starting to meld this kind of mindset that I've got with yeah. with with my 5D. You know, when I often, even with pro shoots, I'll, I'm really, uh, the only thing that I need rods for is to hold a follow focus up off the air, off the ground. And also, I bought a matte box like, nearly like a year ago i think i've used it like nuns i think i've never <laughs> never really pulled you know you just don't want to i just it's just, it just this it's camera just, screams it's out pointless. for being lightweight and it does uh, and so i think we i'd love to see and you know people i guess like genus and all the companies that are using that have made interesting stuff for dslrs this is now your time find a fire find an epic start making stuff that sort of lifts the game a little bit and obviously et is going to no doubt you're going to element technica is going to do this kind of stuff but i'm calling for uh, you know i think this is six uh, 15 mil lightweight rods are now going to start to come into play i think with epic if you've got such a smallish camera, the last thing you want to do is having to bolt, you know, like a big... Although, obviously, you need it because it's fully capable of putting a 20-to-1 Ingenob zoom on the front or whatever. No, no, totally. And, and, and we actually have a big ET plate, like a big one. Like yes. The one that feels like a foot long. And 
proper big rods because we do have some big lenses and we want to we want to support those and there's nothing wrong yep. with that but what i'm just saying is that for the work we've been doing time and time again i come back to thinking god these screw in filter things yeah these are kind of fun yeah. and and even on the focus thing i could totally get you that you want to follow focus there's no question about that but once you change that to a canon mount yeah hmm. mm. now uh, anyway, so I guess, yes, it fits into the 5D. The way I've sort of shot the stuff, the impressions of it were the fact that I had this multi-kind of Swiss army knife in my in my hand. What is evident when you are sort of one man banding it is that how easy it is to just quickly change something. Tap the screen, swipe, tap it again, you know, to change uh, ISO and stuff. I don't have to hand it off. I say I'd like to change the ISO and hand it off to someone who then borrows deep through, a, you know, a five-layer branched menu to kind of uh, fix it for me and then hand it back when it's done and i just trust that it's done but you know by that time the reality that i'm shooting has moved on the guy who was doing the great pose right by that sunball of the light he's walked off you know so it's really nice that that menu is perfect for this size if it was that size and let you get in the face of reality and let you sort of chase it wherever it goes yet the menu stopped you from doing that and being adaptable to it then it would sort of be fighting it but the menu actually works well with that I form think it's factor. the best I think it's the best menu system for a camera like that it's it you anyone's know, ever done yeah there'll be hopefully you know improvements in the way yeah, it sure. kind of flows and stuff but for this for this early on you know well, this early on this you know at this stage it's really really works really well and it's a really you can get to I get I've got my head around it you know in a few hours. I definitely had months with a red one, and I'm still, it still kind of confounds me. Now, just to be, you know, whatever, the, there were shots that you shot that I wished you'd had HDRX on. Because yes, there were definitely. points that you hit the wall. Yep, definitely. And, um, the and also, but also, what I think also, I keep forgetting, and all, uh, partly, you know, I'm in bright sun, I've got, you know, rain, you know, a spray splashing in my face, and I'm just rushing around and quickly. <laughs> and like we didn't take the bomb with me, I had the LCD. Sounds like so. you're an all spice commercial, right? Here, <laughs> yeah, I'm in a pool. That's right. Turn the camera around on me now, 120 frames a second. I'm on a horse. Uh, and you, um, what was I going to say? I completely lost my train of thought. Um, <laughs> You're there, water splashing. Yeah, that's right. It would, probably the, my guess is of the exposure, and I got a little bit better at it on the next shoot when we're on, on out on the water. Is um, it's a little, it's harder to, I guess, in bright sun. Although the LCD is no better or worse than anything else I've used, it's a little it's hard to judge exposure, even though you've got the little, you know, you know, you've got all the exposure guides. Uh, I probably just missed a couple of exposures, and I wish I did have the HDR going. Um, so that I could pull it down, but to my what I need to still remember is the red the the red one and the epic it 's got so much latitude down the back end if in doubt underexpose you know protect those highlights because you 've got a lot more depth down that end than you do in the high stuff so I would have loved to have h there 's a couple of moments where the sun came out and totally yeah. surprised us uh, which it's it is peeking out a bit, but uh, you know if you see the video you 'll see you 'll see where where that where that I, I really want a hood for that I want a little hood. A little hood for the LCD, yeah, I'm some kind the, of snoot yeah. that will let you get your hands Hand, in there yeah. to do the touchscreen. Yeah. You can obviously, one thing though, if you did use the hood, of course, what you can do, and people, and I still have to remember, on the smart handle uh, has that sort of kind of jog shuttle rolling yep. wheel yep. where you can essentially scroll through the menus, hit select, and then scrub stuff. So you can do, it is a little bit slower, obviously, than doing touchscreen, but if you don't have that finger access to the screen, you can actually obviously do everything. And by red mode, you know, you could essentially have an assistant and just say, 
ISO thanks and they just go Doop, and do it and then you, your hands are free and you don't put salty water all over your touchscreen. Anyway, so anyway, uh, I, I find it really hard to talk about it without sounding like a complete dick just banging a on about things, how great this yeah, is. Yeah, some of the other things I think are interesting. I, I think there's a lot of workflow issues in the back end. We yep, graded sure. nearly all of that footage. Well, you, you generously let me grade most of it. Um, and you did an awesome job. Thank you. But we used uh, Red Cine X. Now, Red Cine X has most of the tools one wants, but not all of the tools. Um, it really isn't a color grader, but it did a champion job at it. Um, I guess what I missed is, you know, grads and secondaries and power windows and stuff, things I'm kind of used to for mm. Da Vinci's and stuff. Um, but we still managed to get a nice uh, look, I think. Oh, um, definitely. A lot of latitude definitely. there for grading. Certainly no artifacts I saw um, while grading it up. I do think that uh, when you first load the magazine, you want to kind of apply a base look to everything. Now, the trouble with applying the base look, and I'm, I'm going to check this, but I, I've, I think what happens when you apply the base look, it's going to apply the base look, including the base look's ISO. And that's my only problem with that. I've been toing and froing a bit with Red over this right. because if you apply a base look, what you want to do is apply a base look or just of, say, one thing. But you can at the moment in Red Cine X save a setting. And, of course, if you've used multiple ISOs, mm. you don't, you don't want to reset those ISOs to all 800. You just want to, say, crush the blacks in all of them, regardless what ISO you were shooting on. And in that shoot that we're talking about, we had a range of ISOs. Uh, sure did. So um, so the, it's not really... There are a couple of things like that where you kind of go, oh, that's kind of annoying. Uh, yeah, and then you have to remind mm. yourself you're not in a color grading setup. Um, yeah. Red so Rocket hopefully card, all that stuff will, you know, eventually fall oh, yeah, into sure, place. As, as the other companies... Yes, in. exactly. It's a free app, so, you know, get your money back. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, th- I think a Red Rocket card is invaluable. I mean, just completely invaluable. We have Alpha on quite a few other products here, and all of them are, you know, tapping into the Red Rocket card. If you don't have a Red Rocket card, you're just not in the hunt. Um, yeah, although uh, I know you, I mean, you were pushing it. You're trying to do it on your your laptop. I got no, home no. with my Mac Pro and well, I, I, I chugged I through it. I chugged through it okay. It wasn't too bad. Yes, a Red Rocket is a complete given. I wasn't trying to do the, your job on the on the laptop. I was trying to do see what it would be like if you tried doing it on a laptop. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, you have the Red Rocket card, but it was an interesting test to see it on the laptop. It was doable. But on my Mac Pro, which is, you know, 2007, whatever, five, however, what do I mean? It's prehistoric. It is prehistoric. And that was, you know, that was chugging through it at a not, you know, it was doing okay, considering the fact that I shot a lot of footage at 120 frames a second. All the clips were quite long. By the time you, even by the time you get grabbed to go and press the press the off button it's you know you've you, you've rolled a bit so it was you know a bit slower than if you're processing say 5d clips through grinder or whatever but it's still you know it's, it's not it's not hard but definitely if you were going to do a ton of it and you're going to churn through it and that was your gig red red rocket is uh, essential now can i one quick little bit of news which is hot off the press thanks to jason diamond has just pinged me a little bit of uh, red gear that jared's just posted on red user the DSMC spinner, the EVF mount, which I think as we've all now sort of had a bit of a play with, with, with the camera here, it would be it's this is going to be a sensational uh, thing. Basically, it's a top bracket that fits on top of the Epic and gives you, I guess, this sort of sliding positionable kind of um, ability to position the bomb EVF. Uh, and what it also has is a single rod mount on the top where you could put... Uh, a follow, follow focus. There's actually a, it's actually on the wrong side. It's on the on the uh, I can't really call any side of the uh, epic the dumb side. 
because there's a smart. They put a smart handle on the other side, so you can't call it the, the dumb side either anymore. Uh, but yeah, so it's really interesting. It's called the spinner. Uh, it's uh, very interesting. You can mount the bomb to that and uh, get it right in the right spot for your eye. And also, it screws into the Allen bolts on the top of the camera, the quarter-inch bolts on the to- uh, sockets on the top, and then leads you free to then mount something else on top of that. So, interesting. Uh, no price at this stage or ETA. But uh, anyway, these guys are really starting to roll out. There's a lot of other accessories as they start to come to fruition. There's a really nice snap plate on the bottom, which is gorgeous. This is not Element Technica. This has come from Red themselves. So they're just, uh, as well as kicking out the cameras, they're doing some really interesting accessory kit as they themselves start to play with it and work out what they need. Um, We have been discussing much about HDRX this week because HDRX is something we'll cover more with Stu. In particular, you were shooting uh, the high speed stuff. You want to talk Mm. about that. Though you did shoot HDRX the next shoot. Yeah. Um, And I've got to say... From what I've seen of of Stu's shoot and also of of mine, uh, the bits and pieces that I've done, it really... I'm not sure if I touched on on the last episode, but it really is an interesting look. And it's not... It's quite. I think I called it painterly last time. It's a really, uh, it's a really, very different uh, feel. It doesn't obviously feel like you know like tone mapped thing. It's a very. Um, it just gives you this interesting level of detail. It doesn't feel fake, uh, and I, I think it's going to. But people are going to start to use it just as a look. Uh, and going to start to set up, uh, you know, DPs are going to start to do testing. And, ha- and I say my basic shot package is, you know, in the, in the old days, you know, I'd have a bit of pre-flashing and I want this negative, but I want to push it one stop, you know, I'm going to uh, rate it at this, but push it back, or I want beach bleach bypass. I think people are going to start to have, you know, these settings to, even if they don't need that highlight protection, going to start shooting HDR just because it looks, it has a really kind of, almost a little bit of an old masters kind of a feel you're an art student mike you could probably maybe see that in some of this footage yeah i, I don't know what i don't know how to put it into words in terms of you know from a, from a, what it might look like on a curve but you just can't sort of put a finger on why it looks this way and it as i say it doesn't look fake it just looks different. well well because i think you have that extra range um that's something that a painter can put in a picture because a painter can look at different parts of the picture and then paint that. See it with their eye. It's more yeah. like your eye. More so eye-like. it doesn't feel as photographic as it feels filmic for that reason. I think it doesn't feel, un, doesn't feel mm. fake. It just feels... So it mm. doesn't feel ghastly tone-mapped. Mm. Um, I, I think it's really interesting. I think you can get it to where you want it to be pretty easily and uh, because there's so much room to grade. Mm. But I think there's... And we're going to do this over at fx phd when we do our course on epic there is so many um i'm not gonna say gotchas there are so many interesting implications from hdrx as to how you deal with it how you do your rushes yeah how you tell your offline what you've got to deal with how does the editor know that there's Mm. like two whole shots in there that effectively you could go with you know Mm. the dark and the light version um it's a really interesting problem and i don't think uh i don't think we're out of the out of the creative kind of exploration stage yet. I think there's a lot of room to explore this creatively. Yeah, and, you know, obviously there is, as we mentioned, there's a big data hit for it. It's pretty much double your data, isn't it, I guess? If you have a 25 frames normal shot, you entirely, you say, switch HDRX on and you get, it's twice the file. We we need bigger drives. Yeah, yeah. So drive manufacturers are going to, yeah, going to, they're the winners. We need Thunderbolt, which is basically the high-speed transfer. Yeah. 
Let's um, let's go to the red room now uh, and change gears. Thank you for having that chat about that, and thanks hmm. for posting the stuff that you've posted because I know a lot of people on uh, Red User have really been appreciating. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's I've got I'll put, again put links to the show notes to the little thing I did. But if you go onto Vimeo and you search for Curl Curl, which is the uh, suburb where we shot in the northern beaches of Sydney, Curl Curl Sea Pool is where I shot it. If you search for any of that, you'll find or, it. Or in fact, if you're in Red User, look up of under course. Epic Owners, and there's a thing for Mike Seymour. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, obviously where all the PhD stuff is being and FX Guide stuff is being posted just happens to be under my name and uh, Jason we've got links to your stuff there yep we're all happy um, yes so uh, Adam's interview do you want to set this up yep so Adam Shitsky <laughs> apologies Adam uh, has uh, shot uh, with the uh, Alexa on the new I guess it's the re re do we call it the re reboot it, it, of upstairs. No, actually, it's, 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 it's upstairs, downstairs, the next generation. The next generation. Literally, uh, as in the house is empty for six years or so in the story and a new family moves into 165 Eaton Place. Right, okay. So, But it, the era now is... 30s. 30s, okay. And before, I think it was... 20s. Only 20s. So, yeah, so it's the it, same feel and it's the same those, kind of... For those same English... Kind of characters. Essentially, Nothing. upstairs and downstairs, it's sort of, you know, the sort of maids and butlers uh, of below stairs, I suppose, and there's the inter- sort of mingling with, you know, the... Um, 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 yeah, you know, the owners of the house, I guess, and it's uh, yeah, I guess it's kind of like social comedy. Actually, social the, the writer's comment. parents were in service, and that's why they decided to write this back in the day. One of whom uh, played the the woman who was one of the writers played Rose, who was one of the characters. She returns in the new series, and um, and I interestingly heard her interviewed, and she said that uh, I don't know how they came to this number, but a billion people watched the original Upstairs Downstairs back in the day. Uh, which was quite a few years back in the day. Yeah, oh, it was hugely huge. You can't believe how popular it was. At the time, I was probably in UK at the time it was, you know, around. It was like massive, like, you know, you've got, got to sit down and all oh, upstairs, downstairs. Um, so it was interesting that they came back to do it. I think the other thing that's interesting about it, um, as you'll hear in this uh, interview, is that um, this wasn't necessarily the most obvious choice. It wasn't sort of as if they were they were thinking the series was always going to be shot this way um they they came around to thinking that it would be interesting to look at it with the alexa and when the alexa was used in this uh production it was still very new in its cycle mm-hmm. you're entering the red room i guess the so sort of starting at basics uh, when did you first get involved in the project of uh, upstairs downstairs upstairs downstairs came through to me um just a little over well, about a year ago, uh, in 2010, sort of springtime, and uh, it came from a director that I had initially worked with about some 15 years earlier. We'd done a very ambitious short film, and then uh, he had moved to uh, Wales from London, and, and I had gone off and done my projects, and we sort of lost touch. So it was very exciting to hear back from him, and I knew kind of instantly that, uh, that he, was a, he was an exciting director to get involved with, a very visual director. And indeed, the script... Um, sort of supported that as well. Um, I take it you, you've seen a little bit of it now. Uh, yes, I've seen uh, all of it uh, on DVD. Um, and I must confess that uh, I live in a household where uh, the original was incredibly popular. And uh, so, so this new one was greeted with uh, open arms. Um, and it must have been a reaction that you got for quite a few people, actually, that this was really sort of walking on what one might call BBC hallowed ground. Definitely. I mean, I grew up with that theme tune, you know, echoing through my house 
and uh, it was very much part of a, a, you know a, my childhood, seeing my parents sit down and, and and watch that each week, and and you know to start to tell people in in my community today that I was going to be embarking on a on a sort of uh, remake or a sort of continuation of the show. I got such enthusiastic responses as far and wide from America, Austria, you know, every single country, um, people would say that was our favorite show back then and how exciting. So it was, um, yeah, it was kind of exciting and also somewhat, uh, you know, entering in with somewhat trepidation that one had to live up to all those expectations. Yes, at a recent uh, British awards, so I say recent, a couple of years ago, it was a British awards show and uh, they had a reunion of the original cast and at that time they, they commented that about a billion people had watched the original. So hopefully you can match those in the ratings. Um, Goodness me. So let's, I'd be delighted. let's discuss it from a production point of view because obviously <coughs> we're, we're primarily concerned with uh, the production and, and this was shot on the ARRI uh, Alexa. Now where was Alexa in its kind of uh, product cycle when you got involved with it? I understand it was quite early. Very early indeed. Um, in fact, as, as we were in prep, um, Ari had uh, sort of put out a date uh, of releasing the camera, I think sometime in, in June last year. Um, and it was going to be very touch and go as to whether the, the camera was released in time. But secondly, uh, I was made very kind of aware by, by the, um, the, the, the company here in the UK that, that they were going to be gold dust. You know, they hadn't, they hadn't made that many um, uh, units and, uh, and there were very big films waiting for them. Uh, I knew Martin Scorsese had got his hands on, uh, on quite a number of them with his uh, stereo film that he was shooting in the UK. So it wasn't, it wasn't clear that we were going to get the camera. And in fact, uh, I then put together um, a plan for, for my lighting based much more on, on the D21 um, as it was a camera I'd used many times and, and, and enjoyed using. So, so all our, our, our preparation was based on, on working with a slower camera, 200 ASA camera. Um, but as the production sort of geared, uh, geared up and got closer um, to shoot dates, uh, our, um, our head of production in BBC Wales uh, sort of took the bull, bull by the horns and wrote a, a, a very persuasive letter to Munich saying that this was, this was a really important um, show for the BBC and was going to be you know, on at Christmas time and get lots of attention. And, and, and how about uh, passing on one of the first cameras to us uh, to use and and sure enough we got we got the response we wanted and and two shiny uh, Alexas arrived in their boxes uh, to to Cardiff uh, in time for the production so that was very exciting. So let's um, hit a couple of the technical points to just sort of set the stage. Um, the camera you were rating at what you said that obviously the D twenty one was was a slower camera. What were you rating the Alexa at? So. Um, you know, nominally, uh, Ari would suggest that the D21 was a 200 ASA camera, and, and I would tend to agree. Um, and the Alexa was introduced to me as an 800 ASA camera. Um, I have to admit, I was excited, but perhaps somewhat skeptical that that would be true. Uh, so we did embark on, on, a, on a number of very um, in-depth tests where we compared the two cameras side by side, really to see what the advances were and, and whether the camera really was as fast as they as they were saying it was, and 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 really to check out the whole characteristic of this camera, and and very quickly I realised yes it was an 800 ASA camera, uh, and it was in fact a whole new uh, look. It wasn't just a a step you know forward from the D21. It was a really it's a, it's a whole new 
a whole new deal, if you like. It's like a whole new film stock. So now, were were you technically trying to get everything in camera, pretty much? Let me give you an example of a shot. Early in, uh, I think, episode one, uh, one of the main characters, they've just taken over the house, um, and it's obviously in a state of uh, some disrepair, so there's no lighting. And uh, there's a scene that's played out with a reflection in glass at night. And I remember looking at that and thinking, well, now... There's a good chance you'd have done this with visual effects, and yet it seemed to be that the reflection was playing accurately with the foreground. So I thought, maybe you got it in camera. Were these sorts of shots things that you were pulling off uh, in set, or were you pulling off uh, in VFX? Uh, you, you'll have to give me more detail on the reflection shot. Sure. Uh, uh, she's standing at the window. Quite picturesque. Uh, uh, yes, yes. Okay, yep, I'm with you. Yeah, so the, I mean, what was, what was exciting about having the Alexa with me was, was that, you know, here's a show that, that's period... It has a. It has every age of, of of actor from you know from you know senior to, to very junior. Uh, so faces that we're going to have to to handle. And night, day, candle, you know, you name it. It was going to be in there. And this sequence at the beginning was very important to to really uh, to nail, if you like, uh, where the where the family would would the, the couple would take over the, the old house and and discover it. Uh, rather like something out of um, Great Expectations with cobwebs yeah. everywhere. And, and, and so we, we, that's all in camera. Uh, I, I like to, to do as much as possible in camera. I'm a bit of a traditionalist when it, when it comes to that. Um, uh, and uh, that was all rated uh, at 800 ASA. And in fact, you know, the beauty of the, the Alexa in its sensitivity and, it, and its lovely tonal range is that you really have to trust it now. You can really go back to using your eyes uh, and, and fewer sources and allow the light to, to bounce around and, and, and not have to, to enhance it as much as perhaps one used to with, with other digital cameras. So that shot of the couple gazing into each other's eyes by the window, it's one source coming through the window. It's uh, that the light actually bounces off their faces to one another um, and, and does the work for me, which which is kind of really nice when that happens. Yeah, I thought it was a really nice shot. Um, and there are a few shots like that that really uh, I sort of couldn't help but notice were, were great. There's a, a similar shot. Oh, actually, it's different, but it's similar in the sense that it stood out for me. Uh, in the couple embracing, um, and they falling on the bed, and uh, it seems to be a slow motion shot, and then light is uh, beautifully uh, coming back light from them, which sort of then spills in to fill out almost uh, most of the frame. Uh, and it struck me that you were probably taking advantage there of, uh, again, the Alexa's versatility. That's it. I mean, this is a, this is a show that was built um, like 90, 95% in the studio, um, beautifully designed by, by a fantastic designer. Um, uh, and, and yet, what, I'm always very concerned when, when shooting in a studio that, that it doesn't feel artificial and doesn't feel too contrived. And um, so to be able to you know, put the sun in shot, if you like, and, and create the, the illusion of, of, you know, strong sunlight through a window. I used to do an awful lot on film. You know, you have the confidence with film that, that, that it's going to resolve those strong highlights. And, and I had to kind of leave that style for a number of years with other digital cameras as I started to shoot more digitally. And then the Alexa came along. And, and in fact, you can go back to that kind of very bold use of, of strong highlights because it's, it's handling it beautifully. Um, so that's, yeah, again, one source coming straight through the window, right into the lens, uh, a bit of bounce back onto them, uh, slow-mo again, in camera. It's a, very, it's a really much more organic feel that you get with, with this camera, which is really, 
pretty great. I think you were shooting primarily with master primes, though the material, I guess, uh, on the whole, wasn't shot with a really shallow depth of field. I remember there was a, a really gorgeous shot, I think, in the kitchen or could have been the scullery maids area where it's just a little passing shot, but I saw you had a really super shallow depth of field on that. Um, but I, I guess most of the time you weren't opening the primes right up to like 1.3 or whatever what the master primes mm. would go. Is that right? You're right. You're right, indeed. I mean, I... I'd, I'd shied away from the master primes for a, you know for a number of years because I'm, I'm not a great fan of super duper shallow depth of field. That uh, it has its place, it has its moments. But when you're dealing with a a piece that's about characters interacting, I, I like to to have a little depth where you know the eye can play across the screen and allow the audience to explore the frame a bit more. So uh, although I you know, took these lenses and my focus puller almost passed out when I told him we were going to use them because most people do shoot very wide open with those. I, I chose them really because the glass is so beautiful. Uh, I like to shoot at two, eight and a half or four where, where you get a, a pleasing depth of feel, but it's not too much. Um, but I compared them with the Cooks, the S4 Cooks, which I've shot with a lot. Um, and uh, we did a side-by-side -side comparison. In fact, the, the Master Primes came out slightly warmer um, and they just had a, a detail to them which seemed to enhance the, the, the look coming from the Alexa without being, without being cruel to skin, without being too hard. So uh, they handle flare, and they have a beautiful black to them. I, I mean, I like rich blacks. So I, I, I was thrilled to, to try them out. Um, but as I say, not, not using them traditionally wide open uh, for a change. So... Yeah. Now, being so early in the Alexa process, was it possible to shoot this raw, or was everything done basically uh, to the onboard uh, storage? Well, yeah, you're right. That, um, at the beginning of its of its cycle back then uh, last year, the, the the onboard cards, the SS cards, hadn't been uh, fully beta tested. So although they were there and available and, and kind of tempting us, um, we were advised that, that, uh, that they couldn't guarantee the footage at that point. Uh, so we, we actually shot to, we recorded to SR tape. Um, I shot it in log C, but we recorded it uh, to SR. How did that work when you were doing like Steadicam shots and stuff? Was that restrictive to have a sort of a, uh, I don't know, a cable running back to a, a recorder? It's tricky, <laughs> yeah. I was with a fabulous operator, Jeremy Hiles, um, who, who brought enormous creativity to, to the show. Um, and he does Steadicam as well. And uh, it's, it's not easy, you know, and, and, and he, he'd be the first to complain that, that, that the cable was there. But uh, over the last few years over here, we've got very used to lugging around very heavy SR decks, um, either with the D21 or the F35. Um, so, you know, my team was, were fantastic, and, and so you'd have, you know, a couple of um, people trailing behind trying to keep out the way of his feet. <laughs> but it works. It works. It's obviously much better now with the cards. That's much closer to going back to, to working, uh, you know, on film with the, with the cards on board, no, no extra cables. It's much better. So could you talk to us about how you sort of handled the framing between upstairs and downstairs? Because I was really struck by the the terrific set design of the kind of low, near-claustrophobic, but not necessarily um, dingy, downstairs. And there was just such air and height and sort of, I don't know, it was just a, a brighter, whiter <laughs> upstairs. Uh, but did you do anything like to emphasize those differences between upstairs and downstairs in terms of shot design or choreography of the actual camera work? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's one that 
that was bounced around the, the, the creative team a lot in pre-production. Uh, you know, how much should we emphasize the difference? What should that be? Should it come from the camera? Should it come from the design? Uh, should it be the lighting? Um, you know, all number of ideas bounced around. And, and I, uh, you know, I felt very much from the beginning that what we were, what we were witnessing uh, from the script um, was a family united by the, the, the house that they live in. They're all brought together from disparate backgrounds. Um, and yet they're united by the experience of living in this house. And, and so the director and I felt that rather than emphasizing the difference in the camera, uh, we would unite them and use the same techniques with the camera, both upstairs and down. However, what we did um, use very, very strongly was, was Eve Stewart's design. As you say, she kind of lowered the ceilings downstairs uh, with those fantastic beams, and uh, you get the sense that they're sort of scurrying around beneath the, the masters. And, and of course, I could emphasize that through the lighting, too. I didn't want to be dingy. You know, I, um, the, the, the servants are delightful characters, and, you know, it's important to, to kind of enjoy and love them as much as, as, as the masters upstairs. But I did give it a different quality and, and try to emphasize more pools of light, where upstairs, uh, Eve had, had designed these huge windows and enormous sets with grand entrance hall um, I mean, this, this, this was something like a, a movie from the 50s when you walked onto the stage. It was a, a, you know, pretty much a living, breathing house. You could enter the, through the front doors, go up the stairs into the, uh, the, the, the dining, sitting room area upstairs, and, and then return down, and you have the morning room at the back. I mean, she'd, she'd really done a, a spectacular job with emphasizing the scale of the upstairs. So I, 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 uh, I used, I sort of played with that, and went for much bigger sources through the window with, with streaming light and um, uh, to kind of give the, give the sense of, of space that the, that the upstairs has. Because some of those upstairs sets were incredibly detailed. Uh, Maud Lady Holland's uh, kind of re- yes. study was just uh, exquisitely uh, done. And, and I guess the, the nice thing about the Alexa is you seem to be carrying a lot of that detail. Because in the first show, there really was, a, a, I mean, let's face it, fairly poor by yeah. the today's standard production values. We didn't see into the shadows. It was just really pools of light and, and it was sort of a hint yeah. of stuff. And, and you had these very detailed background uh, sets because her um, mm. study, as it were, was really detailed. Yes, yes. I mean, you know, I think it's very difficult to make direct comparisons because um, we've, we've moved so far on in, in television production since uh, the you know, early 70s. I mean, today, the, I, I, I feel the comparison is much closer to, to, to movies, really. Um, we're expected to, to attain the same quality, the same standard, the same detail um, with, you know, a quarter of the budget and a quarter of the time. Well, I think one of the nice um, things, if you were to compare it to films, though, is that unlike some films, which obviously have very high production values, like um, a Gosford Park or whatever, there's no, there's yeah. no social commentary here that either upstairs is snooty and to be mocked or downstairs is illiterate and to be to be pitied. There's, there's actually warmth. Mm. No one's black, no one's white. There are, there are good people upstairs and there are mm. people downstairs and, and both sides make uh, mistakes. And I guess that mm. really came through, I think, in your work because it, there was sort of a genuine affection for characters even mm. though at various times we good. didn't like what they did. 
Yes, that's really. I'm really pleased to hear you say that. That's that's great, um, because I think Heidi Heidi Thomas, who, who wrote these beautiful scripts, she does have a, a deep affection for for all the characters, and and her skill really was to to flesh out each one individually, no matter how brief you might spend time with them. You you really felt the wholeness of their of their lives, and I think that's where the the, the design re- reflected that. Eve's, Eve Stewart's whole mantra was, "We must get the detail right. We really have to. We owe it to 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 the to the piece to make people believe in the period, make them believe these characters really existed." So she she put a lot of effort into into the minute detail, um, working with fantastic uh, um, dressers, set dressers, and and um, people who put the texture into the walls, and and that I think you know from the script up was then reflected um and 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 equally as you say we 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 wanted to have an affection um you know in the lighting as well for for these characters below stairs they're beautiful people they're they're, they're poetic in their own way and uh, and i i wanted to 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 share that affection one of the things that's always been a sort of problem with any kind of period drama like this and and it doesn't matter which period you go for um uh, it's that you have a lot of trouble linking the outside to the inside because you've got sort of a real street and an, an interior set. Um, and we already discussed a little bit there where you seem to really link with the lighting, which was nice. But I, I thought that you seem to have a bit of fun in a creative sense with Jean Marshall or Rose Buck's character at the beginning of the production because you had a lot of close-ups on her as we were getting a lot of performance without dialogue. Um, the audience knew and she knew what she was looking at and the significance of it. Were they interesting things to like? Because there was a bit more exterior work there. Yes. I, I mean, it, it's always a challenge to, to link exteriors to, to completely artificial you know, environment in the studio. And, and it was one that I spent many hours you know, worrying over and trying to think of best ways to improve. Um, you know, because often we would cut directly from somebody uh, in the street to, on the doorstep to them coming through the doors into our set or vice versa. Uh, and that's a pretty uh, tough ask to to match the lighting and the and, and the tone of of the, the light. Um, but again, you know, Eve had this fantastic um, uh, painter who came and, and painted this magnificent backdrop for us uh, through the windows, um, which I uh, you know I was just blown away when I saw it. And you and he even did um, little touches to the windows so that at night we could backlight the windows on this, on this painted backdrop and, and, and give the sense of, uh, tungsten light. And that sequence at the beginning with Rose arriving at the house, going down the stairs and exploring the, the basement. Again, you know, you're cutting from, from streets, real street to, um, studio. Um, so it's, it's, it's always tricky, but, uh, you know, her performance carries that beautifully. And, uh, and I, you know, hopefully the, the the mood that we we kind of enhance down there um, carries you across from one to the other. And we shouldn't imply that it was all studio because there were things like the uh, fascist uh, march and stuff that were, um, you know, obviously not uh, on yes. that set. Um, how were you lighting those uh, setups? So the, the yeah, I think in episode two. There's there's this great sequence um, with the with the black shirts uh, marching in the street, which um, all shot in Cardiff. Um, to to look like London, um, it's a, it's a big ask, you know, on on a BBC drama to try and recreate uh, a sequence that had, I think, maybe fifty, sixty thousand protesters, and you know, we have we have maybe a hundred. Um, so 
we're keeping it tight. We're using longer lenses. We're we're going handheld. We're trying to enhance the the, the chaos. And then and uh, for me, you know, lighting it over a period of two days is is always tricky. You're, you're kind of hoping that the light will match um, that you're given from one day to the next. And of course, it doesn't in Wales in the summer. It changes a lot. So I'm trying to put in a consistent backlight to try and um, unify the, the, the lighting and also to pick up the sort of smoke and the dust that's kicked up um, and play it very simple, really trying to keep it as naturalistic as possible, so just kicking it back with, with some poly. Um, yeah, so I think, we, I think we got away with it. Yeah, no, it, was, uh, it was great. And, and when you came to lighting some of the uh, interior uh, sequences and stuff, is there... Um was there an approach? Uh, I mean, how much was it? Because uh, you, you were knocking through, a, I assume, a reasonable number of pages per day to, to get uh, through on budget. Mm. So it probably wasn't possible to just totally uh, light every uh, close-up. Did you have to sort of do a master lighting plan and then, and then punch mm. in? Well, uh, no. In fact, um, it, was, it was fast, but... Uh, uh, you know, if one is if one is lucky enough to work with a good electrical team and you're well prepared, um, you can. You know, I find that you can light, uh, uh, relight for certain close-ups. Um, sometimes it's not possible, and so you have to find ways to 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 support uh, your cast as best you can when you when you do those close-ups and you and you haven't got the time. But um, a lot of the time we were relighting, and 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 I'm really keen to try and particularly on a show like that where where you're trying to engage with so many characters i'm really trying to look after them uh photographically um and and relight their close-ups so that i mean on a big stage like that um you know say the 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 entrance hall in the house um i'm having to use very large sources through the windows um and and light with very big brush strokes so come the close-ups, it's quite important to, to be able to, to remodel as, as fast as you can. But I had a, I had a great, uh, a really supportive gaffer, and, and, and we, were able to, we were able to do some really good work. Because there were some nice high shots uh, from the upstairs looking down at that big sort of atrium um, entranceway, which literally meant that unless you had a lot of guys painting stuff out, there just wasn't anywhere to put the darn lights because we were sweeping around and seeing everything. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, I mean, it, 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 it's, it, it was a challenge because... For me, uh, you know, going in, uh, my main concern is to try and make a large set look intimate, not look flat, not look overlit, and not lose its shape. Uh, shape is very important to, to me uh, to guide the eye and to, to keep the, the look of the piece um, a little bit more detailed, a little bit more sophisticated. So um, I, used, I used Dino's uh, through the windows um, and uh, and pin sources from from way up above, uh, you know, they're kind of based on old spotlights where you can actually control the the beam from the actual head, so we could we could shutter it down and keep it off areas and just pick out paintings, pick out flower pots, you know, just so that the 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 overall texture as you look at a wide shot still had some light and shade. Look, I, I wanted to talk to you, uh, obviously, about upstairs, downstairs, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't just touch on Outcast briefly, mainly because of the fact that you shot that with anamorphics. And uh, just in finishing up, and if we can just jump projects just briefly for a second, um, I was fascinated yeah. to know that you shot anamorphics on that. Could you just quickly tell us on that separate project, obviously not related, um, why you mm. chose anamorphics and, and, in fact, which anamorphics you, you used? 
Yeah, no, that's great. To, great that you've you've managed to see a little bit of that. I'm really proud of that project. It's a it's a real standout uh, piece. I, I feel, and and you know, television dramas are, are, are challenging in many ways, but more than anything, I think there's there's just such a wealth of material out there, and you're trying to compete with with big movies on the other channels. So, you know, I feel more and more it's very important to to brand uh, shows to an extent and to give them an identity. Um, but to try and do that in a subtle way that's, that's not going to lose its uh, appeal within a few weeks. Uh, so the director and I, um, I've worked a lot with Barrett Naluri. He's, he's a fantastic uh, director, very visual. And, and he, he was very passionate about um, the idea of anamorphics. And we were trying to, to, to think of um, you know, ways in which we could employ this. And then I discovered that the, the D21 um, has, has a, a method of recording um, uh, uh, M-scope, um, which is a, a sort of dual stream technique where you can use traditional anamorphic lenses um, and the camera has a 4x3 sensor, um, a sort of equivalent size to an academy gate on a 35mm camera. So you can employ anamorphics. Um, and this particular show wanted to have uh, the director was very keen that we should play down the sci-fi element. It's, it's, it's set in the future, but he wanted that to be a sort of backdrop rather than, than too upfront. So it's more um, of a kind of a pioneering want, kind of, uh, one of a better term, almost yeah. Western kind of feel, isn't it? Exactly. It, that's absolutely it. You 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 put the you've put your finger on it. It's it's like a Western meets a sci-fi. Yeah. It's about some pi- about pioneers in a hostile landscape, and and we kind of wanted to give it a slightly old style uh, look. So we, I, I, I dug around and, and found some very old Lomo anamorphics from Russia, which um, I believe Tarkovsky uh, had used. And we completely fell in love with these amazing anamorphics that flare in the most incredible way. But we couldn't really find enough sets of them. And this was, this was a show that was going to be in South Africa. It needed two, uh, two cameras throughout, maybe second unit, you know, the kind of pace that we have to go at. Um, we couldn't get enough lenses, and the lenses we could find were, were really quite old and, and, and not very reliable. So in the end, I found the, uh, the old uh, uh, Ari um, Hawk anamorphics, um, and, and we found the C-series, which, which give beautiful flares, very classic uh, you know, streaks across the, across the frame. And, uh, and though we were framing for 16 by 9, you still get all the benefit of that beautiful roll-off. The focus falls off on the edges. Um, suddenly, you move from a digital format to something that looks, uh, you know, 15, 20 years um, earlier. Because this was so shot was on the D21. On the D21, exactly. And we were going to deserts and mountains and ravines and, you know, again, very challenging uh, conditions for a digital camera. And uh, going in, you know, I was quite nervous that that, uh, that the, the sensor would cope with that, and and it did. I mean, I still have an affection for the D21. You know, it, it doesn't have a lot of the things that the Alexa can offer today, but it's rather like a an old film stock. It's, it's something that you know I think people might might look back fondly on. I've shot with some of those older anamorphics, and you can actually get not just the flare that we know as the sort of classic uh, anamorphic flare, but you can actually get more of a halation and softening, especially if you go wide open. Do you have any issues mm. with, uh, with that? Like you actually, it's a sort of a really unwanted artifact in the sense of uh, an almost vertical smear kind of halation. Um, sometimes, yeah, sometimes we did. And, uh, and really the, the, the theme of that, of that was to embrace, embrace it all and <laughs> enjoy 
those defects, you know, rather than trying to, to get something clean and sharp and crisp like one would um, with some more modern glass. Um, we loved the fact that it was only sharp right in the center and that the, the flares were very unpredictable and that they were organic. I mean, we did compare using spherical lenses with the, the streak filters that you can get today um, to recreate those flares, but they don't shift and change in the way that, that an anamorphic lens will. As you pan across um, a hot source with an anamorphic lens, the, the flare changes organically and, and you get these lovely... Um, sort of accidents, which uh, happy accidents, which I think we slightly miss um, we, we, um, now that we've moved. We spoke to J.J. Abrams after Star Trek. Tell me, on a timeline, we, was he ripping you off or were you uh, referencing him? <laughs> I'd love to say he was ripping us off, but it was completely the other way around. I mean, we were obsessed with, with the last Star Trek, and, and, and as a look, it's absolutely awesome. And so we would often watch that and, and enjoy um, taking ideas uh, from the set design and, and the flares and, and I've got to say, for, for science fiction, and I know that it's not primarily a um, like a space uh, production, but one thing about those anamorphics, and, and it can be it's just as relevant, I guess, for a desert as a sci-fi, but you do get this lovely glare quality, I think, about them. And, and it, it almost is a way of... Uh, of visualizing light in much the same way that like a hazer or a smoker would, that you kind of get this sense of glare and, and light. Um, and I think you got some of that in, in your production, didn't you? Mm, yes, I, I know what you mean. Uh, I mean, again, the lenses are just sort of taking you somewhere uh, in a way that certain digital cameras now, you know, they're so clean and so perfect and they handle everything so well. Um, the, you know, those organic effects that we used to love getting from from film stocks, um, processing, and, 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 and glass. I think the glass now is, is really crucial. It kind of defines the look for, for digital work. And, and on Outcross, you know, to create another world, to give the, the, the immediate sense that you're, you're on another planet, that kind of glass where it's not, it's not resolving everything, it's, it's taking you to a, to a different place visually, um, just helps immediately set the place um, and then with lighting, you know, we could also be, be bold with it. And, 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 you know, in the spaceship, we, we had all kinds of sources in, in shot. And, and, the, and the lenses would, would just play with those in, in a really gorgeous way. Of course, you need a damn good focus for that. <laughs> we were very fortunate to have, uh, you know, really one of the best I've ever worked with, um, a South African down, down in Cape Town. And, and he just handled it fantastically well. Because, like you say, you do you do need to be quite wide open to benefit from those flares, and and that's a tough job. Well, look, thank you so much for talking about upstairs, downstairs, and uh, and of course, uh, outcast. Can I just ask you? Uh, and I, I guess I'm fishing here, but uh, my my wife would kill me if I didn't ask you. Uh, any plans you think for the upstairs, downstairs to move from a Christmas special to something more? Yes, yeah. Well, you can reassure your wife that uh, the BBC have commissioned another six episodes. So there'll be a whole new season coming. Uh, makes um, life happy but, in my house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was a it was a huge success, uh, and and the BBC are very very excited about the the new show that, that's going to be made this year. So I hope it'll have a have a long life. Well, again, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. 
thank you, Adam, for that. Thanks for taking the time. That was fantastic. Uh, look forward to it finally hitting, hitting the screens here in Oz. We haven't uh, got the, the show running just yet, but it, I think I've, I've seen promos for it, so it'll be hitting, I guess, US soon too. Yeah, I got it on DVD, so it's not a bad way to see it either. Um, mm, excellent. Hey, uh, look, I said there was going to be a bit of a Easter egg for those that hung around to the end. Um, so the way that FX Guide works nowadays is that FX Guide has been expanded and it has this new thing called Insider. Uh, and Insider is basically just a way of us thanking people that have been supporting FX Guide. And so you can subscribe to FX Guide uh, and there's a page there off the new website. And as a consequence, we are able to do more. And one of the things we do is uh, also include bonus stuff for people. Now, the Easter egg is this. We've done an interview with Rob Legato. Now, Rob Legato is <clears throat> fairly well... Um, Revered, I think it's probably mm. the right way to do it, for things like Apollo 13, Titanic, um, Avatar. And we got to sit down with Rob actually in his home. As a visual effects supervisor. Yeah. Uh, but having said that, he comes from a camera background. This is why I kind of wanted to mm. link it here because he himself says in the interview that he can't draw, but he can photograph. And he's very uh, camera-centric. He came from the camera department. Um, and so... What happened is we we made this terrific interview up, or whether he did this terrific interview. He was incredibly generous with his time, and the interview ran for like over an hour or something. So what we've done is we've put out the main thing on FX Guide. It's free. Anyone can have it. Um, but we've also given a gift to those Insider members of an additional 35 minutes of that interview where he covers some really amazing stuff, including some stuff to do with Martin Scorsese and The Departed, which was um, I thought were pretty funny. Hysterical. So anyway, uh, what we thought we'd do is you just play you a sample of that. Um, this is uh, Rob talking about him lighting um, miniatures. You had uh, obviously fairly large uh, miniatures because you yeah. needed to, but you were shooting in these uh, control conditions that required you to be uh, inside, I presumed. So I'm trying to work out how you managed to get the distance to solve the inverse square law across the miniature because you could, you know, in, in a perfect world, you'd shoot a miniature outside, so then you can get parallel light. You don't have to worry about mm. a different exposure between one end and the other. But I, I seem to have hinted or read a hint somewhere that you did something to allow for the fact that, obviously, in a studio setup, the light is going to be closer to the miniature at one end than the other, and that's a significant difference when you don't have the distance uh, that you would have outside between a light source and a, and a miniature. I'm trying to remember what I did with that. I mean, it's, uh, part of it is just careful lighting and, and making sure that, um, like, like say, in the, in the case of Apollo, uh, what I did uh, when I photographed that is, is uh, not that this mat- made that much difference, but I took a light meter reading while I was in Florida at Cape Canaveral, so we're used to seeing all the stock footage, so I, here's what sunlight is, here's what shadow is, and I'm not going to vary from that. When I shot all the ships in the studio, I set it up so that I had this basically a 360-degree light source that was perfectly at one level exposure, two stops under, and then the sunlight was always two stops over. And all that I did was move the, the, the key light around until I liked what it did. Um, and it looks like daylight. And to get the lamp, I take the Fresnel off the lamp and put it as far away as I can, and it's a single light source. And that's essentially what I did in Titanic, too, is that you get the biggest light source you can, take the, the, the uh, Fresnel off of it so it's a, a, a more of a point source, and just get it way the hell away from the model. So, it's, so it's, uh, by the time it actually reaches the model, the light fall off is um, pretty even across the board. So that's like the trick. But you need space to do that. You, can't, you, have, to, you have to be a, a, a pretty far away to do it. Um, 
and I just did, did a model shoot just a couple of days ago where I didn't have the space, and so I did it with um, a whole row of maxi brutes under a silk okay. so that instead of uh, lighting from one light source, I couldn't because I couldn't get it back far enough to actually evenly light up the entire area. I lit it from floor to ceiling with maxi brutes, put a thin a layer of diffusion in front of it, and said it's more diffused sunlight, but it still is a sunlight uh, uh, pass. And it wor- that worked pretty well. But, and, you know, because maxi boots are all the individual lamps, but I'm sort of getting off on a tangent, but uh, th- that's essentially what, what I did. And then the other sort of interesting lighting thing I did on Titanic is I made miniature lights to imitate what Russ Carpenter was shooting on the ship. He would light everything with Musco lights at a certain distance away. So I made mini Musco lights. All right. So when I photographed what I was doing and intercut with what they were doing, <clears throat> I could make it a lot more perfect, but then it would be different. And, the, you know, that's one of my sort of things I like to do is make it feel like there's no bump between what is being done photographically uh, in the movie and when I'm doing something. Is I, I, it's, it's sort of a religion that I... Uh, but I think the secret of, if I can be so presumptuous, of your work is that you're not worried about the levels of the light, you're about the quality of the light. There's a really big difference there in getting that light to, to have the same quality in way it uh, mm-hmm. works over things. Now, let me back up for, to Apollo, because there are a couple of things I want to ask about that. I heard that you, and I think this is right, actually showed some people some footage of the launch and then got their opinions as to what they thought they'd seen mm-hmm. to try and tap into this idea that what we imagine of a historical event isn't actually frame accurate. So you, if, if I'm right, weren't matching to stock footage, you were matching to what, yeah, okay. imagined footage. Yeah, I'll tell you about it. It's, it's a thing, I, I'd love to say that you know, I had this genius idea uh, beforehand, uh, but what it really was is that I was starting to get myself out on the limb because everybody wanted to use the stock footage, Ron Howard and the producers, and because they have it. And what I didn't like about it is that you sort of get mesmerized by the fact that it's the real thing, but when you start to cut it together, there's 16-millimeter footage cut with this, and all of a sudden it feels like you're out of the movie and into a documentary, and you're not really there, so you know it's historical footage. And, and I, I, I just something about it just bugged me that I, you know, and at the time, you know, no one's really done or, or attempted to do what I was trying to do, which is to make it look like something that everybody remembers. So I was getting nervous about it, so what I did is... I took a bunch of the stock footage that I would then re-photograph so it all has the same uh, quality and uh, play it for everyone and just hear, you know, which shots they like the best, essentially, which was the ones the most impressive. Obviously, you want to d- try to do something that's more memorable. And what I discovered and then started to tap into was the fact that people, because they got moved by the moment, remembered it, even if they just saw it, and would re-describe the shot to me differently than what they just saw. And it's because of the sort of the uh, um, organic factor that's built into it, the way you feel about something, the way what impresses you and what doesn't impress you. And so you sort of like make things go away, uh, ugly sort of blemishes and things go away, and you just remember the highlight. And so it was like, well, that was interesting. And somebody would say, well, you know, when the, when the camera tilted up, it's like cameras don't tilt up. They're bolted and welded to the thing. They don't tilt anywhere. And um, and then a couple people described it like that. I went back and looked at the shot and you feel the sense of it soaring and I think you just remember it that way. So I decided to do this thing. I always like the sort of the emotional portions of stuff. I don't really like the technical uh, things. Is um, uh, tap into what you thought you remembered than what you actually saw. And 
what happened is when I did that, it was exactly what people remembered not seeing it back to back with the stock footage. So it was actually more truthful to them than the real thing. And we got the very nice compliment from one of the astronauts who he remembered it. You know, it's like, where'd you get this great footage? You know, it was in a vault somewhere and it was exactly, you know, and he didn't really realize that we faked it all or or fabricated it because it matched what he remembered. And, you know, and and we're all getting inspired by this image. I mean, it it was a pretty incredible emotional response to something. And I ended up using that idea and furthering it when I did Titanic. It was just, it was like, wow, this is something to really make what you do or make your take on things uh, different. It's, you know, because it's easy to some degree to match something identically. It's another thing to match the emotional content of it. And that's really what you're striving for. Not just a factual nuts and bolts. Yes, it looks exactly like the thing. Because that may be all well and good, but that may be a boring shot or may not be emotionally fit the moment. So this was sort of how to incorporate all of those things. And so that's that's the the, 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 the long story on that. Well, Robert Goddard, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're most welcome. Okay, so I cut that off there. I could listen to that all day. And so what we've got is basically, um, there's, as I say, there's an episode of FX Guide TV. I think it's like 105 on the main site. But if you're a member of Insider, you can get all this extra stuff of him talking about, as I said, um, Martin Scorsese. He also talks about using stereoscopic stills cameras on Titanic, which was fascinating to me. Mm. And some really interesting discussion, Jason, which I thought this audience might be interested in, in uh, camera or other shot design, shot composition on Apollo uh, 13. And all of that stuff is in this uh, bonus insider video. Excellent. Thank you, Rob, for taking the time to do that. That's uh, awesome. He's a great storyteller. He's really an incredible guy. Yeah, so anyway, if you go to uh, FX Guide TV, if you've got an iTunes account, you'll just see the normal one. If you go to the website, you'll see um, uh, one of the stories I posted there under the quick take is a link for those of you that are Insider members. If you're not an Insider member, we'd love you to be one. Um, if you're an Insider member or a member of FX PhD, uh, then just a reminder, we have a party on Tuesday night. If you're just a listener to Red Centre, well, we still love you too, and come down to NAB to the uh, post pit, as I said before, um, down at the end of the South Hall at 1.30, SL12705, and uh, we'd love to see you there. Yep, thank you. That'd be great. Last time was a real good turnout. Love to see some more. Well, uh, thanks to everyone that's contributed to the show. Thanks to our producers and team behind the scenes. And until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. This podcast sponsored by Storm, the Red Digital Cinema Production Hub from the Foundry. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.